It's always a privilege to open the scriptures together. We love to hear God speak, and the best place to hear him speak is from his word, from this book. If you want to know what God has to say, open this book. You'll hear him speaking. If you hear God speaking and you're not quite sure if it's him, open this book and it will confirm what you heard. This is our standard. This is what we go by. We are a Bible-based church here at Liberty Church, and uh, we want to go by what the book says. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, John chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. Let me open there as well. There we go. I brought out my new King James tonight. Uh-oh. I can... Uh, I challenge any of you to a sword drill with this Bible. I can find stuff just like that. I think. All right. Tonight we're talking about God and the purpose of life and how those two things intersect and intertwine. Uh, that God has created us for a purpose and that our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him. Amen. And so to this point in our Sunday night sermon series, we've asked ourselves three questions. What is the primary purpose of a person's life? And the answer is simply to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not just in heaven, though we will enjoy him fully there. We can enjoy him here and now. And of course, we have been. And it's our desire that we would enjoy him more and more and more. That our... Um, ability to press into his presence would grow. It's all there. It's all waiting for us. It's all ours. We have it. But we live in time and space, and so some of our time is taken up with the cares of life, the things of life, the necessities of life. But the more time that we spend in the presence of God, the more those other things either don't matter or they seem to be taken care of all on their own. It's almost like we get more energy to do those things uh, when we do them from the presence of God uh, rather than trying to get them all done so that we can go into the presence of God. Because if we're trying to get everything done before we seek God and seek his presence and take time apart from those things for him, there will always be something else to do. Right. Always. And so we want to make it a priority to put God and his presence first and foremost, to enjoy him now and to enjoy him more and more until we get to him, enjoy him perfectly in eternity. And it is this word of God, as I mentioned a few moments ago, both the Old and the New Testament, that guides us in our glorifying and enjoying God. You can't make up your own rules. 
You can't set your own standard as to how you are going to glorify God and enjoy Him. God has set out the parameters for how to glorify Him and how to enjoy Him. Uh, and so you can find what those things are in the Word of God. The Word of God, the Scriptures, the sacred writings, they teach us what we should believe about God and they teach us what God expects of us. The beautiful thing is you can know. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to figure it out trial and error. You can go to the book and God will teach you what to believe about him because he's revealed it. And he will also teach you what he expects of you. Have you ever gone to a job or gone to do something and you don't know what's expected of you? It's really uncomfortable, isn't it? And you try to figure things out, and usually what ends up happening is you disappoint the person that hired you. But it's their fault. They didn't explain to you what was expected of you. Well, God is not like that. God is a benevolent God. He's a good God. He has told us what he expects of us, and we can find it in the Scripture. So we've talked a lot about that over the past few weeks. If you'd like a refresher on those things, you can... Find those messages on our Rumble channel. We've recorded them there for you. Tonight, though, we're going to ask ourselves three questions. Three simple questions that have uh, simple answers that are, you know, for some, hard to understand. Uh, they're not easy answers, but they're simple answers. Uh, those questions are, what is God? What is God? Not who is God. What is God? Is there more than one God? And how many persons are in the Godhead? What is God? Is there more than one God? How many persons are in the Godhead? First, what is God? Notice I'm not saying who is God. We're going to we're going to answer that as well. But first, we need to start with what is God? What is he? Well, John chapter 4, verse 24 tells us. Jesus says, God is spirit. That's what he is. That's God's essence. That's his substance, if you will. He is spirit. Notice it doesn't say a spirit. He is spirit. God is spirit, capital S. That word spirit is the Greek word pneuma. Now that Greek word pneuma is used in a number of ways. But in this particular text, the word pneuma means this, listen carefully. A simple essence devoid of all or at least all matter and possessed of all power of knowing, desiring, deciding, and acting. Let's say it again, listen carefully. Numa. A simple essence. What is God? God is spirit. God is pneuma. 
God is a simple essence. And that essence is devoid of matter. But it is possessed of all power, all knowing, all desiring, all deciding, and all acting. In other words, if you're picturing God as he's been depicted, as an old man with white hair and a white beard, you're not thinking of God, you're thinking of Santa. God is not Santa. God is devoid of all matter. He is a simple essence. He is spirit. And that spirit knows everything. Desires everything. Decides everything. And works everything out for its glory. And our good. Go back to Psalm 147, verse 5. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. Psalm 147 and verse 5. I'm going to see if I can beat you there. When you get it, say, I'm there. Okay, good. I was there when I said, when you get it, say, I'm there. Psalm 147 and verse 5. David writes, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. So here David says that God is mighty and he is mighty in power. That's another way of saying he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. And he says, His understanding is infinite. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. God, who is spirit, is possessed of all power and all-knowing. Okay, ready? Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Go. There. Revelation 4, 8. No, I don't have tabs either. Revelation 4, 8, and we, we sang about this this morning and tonight, scenes of the throne room of God. Look at this. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Our God is... Holy. God, who is spirit, is all powerful, all knowing, and he is thrice holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. Skip ahead a few pages to Revelation 15 4. Revelation 15 4 reads After these things I looked, and behold, the temple. Of the tabernacle. Oh, sorry, I'm reading verse 5. Revelation 15, 4. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Look at this. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. God, who is spirit, who is Numa, 
is possessed of all power and knowing and desiring and deciding his judgments are just. His his justice is perfect. That's the God that we serve. A God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-desiring, all-deciding, and all-acting. 1 John 4, 8 to 10. Some of you probably have it memorized. Let's go there. 1 John 4, verse 10. Let's start at verse 8. God is spirit, and this verse, this passage is going to tell us that God is something else as well. You'll recognize it when we get there. He who does not love does not know God. For what is God? God is love. Now, we talked about this this morning. The culture loves to quote this part of the Bible back at you. Doesn't it? You ever had, you ever had an unsaved family member, or friend, or maybe a progressive Christian quote this verse at you when you're taking a stand for truth? God is love. Okay, good. We agree. But what is love? Do I get to define love? Do you get to define love? Does the culture get to define love? No. We don't get to define it because that is not our essence. It is not our nature. It is God's essence and God's nature. God himself is love. And this is the love of God. Look at the next verse. The love of God was manifested toward us in that God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Okay? That's not so offensive. Your progressive family members, neighbors and co-workers, or your unsaved family and friends, they might even like that verse when you start defining love as God defines it. They're not going to like this next verse. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The gospel is the most offensive message in the entire Bible, and this is why. Because God, who is love, sent his son to show his love because we were deserving of his wrath. That's what propitiation is all about. Propitiation is a fancy word for satisfaction. Jesus was the satisfaction of God for our sins. What did Jesus satisfy? He satisfied God's just wrath. 
Remember, we said God is spirit and he is uh, capable of deciding his judgments are just and perfect. Well, God looked down at the sinful world and made a just judgment that we have all sinned and fall short and that the only way for him to have us and for us to have him, the only way for us to know him and enjoy him was for him to send his son to satisfy his just wrath for our sin against a thrice holy God. You see how it all comes full circle here? You can't have God is love without God is spirit. You can't have God is love without God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-desiring, all-deciding, all-acting, all-holy, because that is what God is. It's his essence and his nature. He is spirit and he is love. And finally, we're going to talk about God's attributes. So we've talked about his essence, his nature, now his attributes. God is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchanging in his being. He doesn't change. His love never changes. He is wisdom, righteousness, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and so many more things. That is God's, those rather are God's attributes. That is how he demonstrates his essence and nature. He is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. And he shows us that through his wisdom, through his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. Go to Job 11, 7 to 9. Job 11, here we are. Who's there? Good. Job 11, 7 to 9. This is what Job says. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? They are deeper than Shoal, the place of the dead. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth, broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? That's the God we serve, who is infinite. You cannot know his height, his depth. You cannot know his measure. He is God. We are not. Skip ahead a few pages to Psalm 90 in verse 2. Psalm 90 in verse 2 says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
God is eternal. Like I said earlier, we live in time and space. We only understand things with beginning and ends. God is outside of that. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal. He's the one who made the earth. And he's the one who sustains the earth. And then finally, go back to the New Testament there. James chapter 1 and 17. James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from where? Above. And it comes down from the Father of heavenly lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God's infinite, eternal, and unchanging attributes have always been, are, and always will be. His wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness and truth, and many more. And the amazing thing is that we are beneficiaries of those attributes. We can enjoy those attributes now and fully and perfectly in heaven. That's the God that I look forward to seeing one day. Question two, is there more than one God? Well, the simple answer is no. No. There is only one living and true God. Now, there are many gods, small g. There are many uh, things and places and structures and images and carvings that people worship and that people call God, but they are not God. There is only one true and living God who says, God, he says, where does he say it? In his word, uh, Deuteronomy chapter six and verse four. You still doing a sword drill with me? Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. God is one. And there is only one. And we are commanded to love that God. In other words, we are commanded to enjoy that God. I don't know about you, but I enjoy the people I love. And we are called primarily to know God and enjoy him forever. And here God calls his people, his chosen people, Israel, and by extension, that is us, the church, the true Israel. We are called to worship and to love and serve the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. 
Let's read what the prophet Jeremiah has to say. Jeremiah 10.10. There, wow, I opened right to it almost. Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is the true God. Yahweh God, capital L-O-R-D. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and all the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Isn't it amazing? This is true of God. At his wrath, it will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure. And this is love that God sent his one and only son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of that wrath for those who would believe in him. That's you and I tonight. We don't have to go through God's wrath. We don't have to suffer his wrath. We are not destined for wrath, the Apostle Paul said. Those of us who call on the name of Jesus. What I love about the Bible is that once you, see, like once you see the gospel, once you get the gospel, once you accept that you were a sinner and that Jesus came to save you and that you are now called to love and serve this God and obey him, you'll see gospel on every page. When you read Jeremiah 10.10 about the wrath of God and the indignation of God, you can skip ahead to 1 John 4 and say, yeah, But Jesus satisfied that wrath for me. It's incredible. I've been memorizing these verses. Jeremiah 43.10. Sorry, Isaiah 43.10. Isaiah 43.10. Let's see if I can do that. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Pretty good? Okay. Here God says through the prophet Isaiah that you are my witnesses. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Israel. And then he says, and you are my servant whom I've chosen. He's talking to his prophet Isaiah. And he's saying, you are my witnesses and my servant so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God and there will be none after me. I'm the one true God. Now, Old Testament Israel was called to be a witness to this fact that there is one true God. And now, more fully, the church of God, the true Israel, are witnesses to this fact because we were commissioned by Jesus to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Jesus also said, 
go to Jerusalem and wait for power from on high so that you can be my witnesses. Jesus has commissioned his church, and more importantly, he has empowered his church with his Holy Spirit to bring the truth of God and his gospel to all nations. That's your commission. That's my commission. It's our mission as a church to keep the great commandment and fulfill the great commission because Jesus has commanded us and empowered us to do so, to be witnesses to this fact that there is only one true God and there is only one way to that God. You know this, but it bears repeating. The world wants to have many ways to God. I hear these kinds of conversations and have these kinds of conversations all the time. You, you go to God your way, I'll go to God my way. You live your truth, Matt, and I'll live my truth. You have your firmly held beliefs and you keep them to yourself and I'll have my firmly held beliefs and I'll post them all over the internet. That's it seems to be how it works, isn't it? Why do they want us to shut up so bad? Must be because what we're saying is true. The world wants there to be many ways to God, many truths. Why? Because they don't want to be accountable to God. Because they're uh, sons and daughters of their father, the devil, who himself didn't want to be accountable to God, who wanted to ascend to the throne of God. Satan is doing what he's always done. He's deceiving people so that they won't be accountable to God. But we are called to stand firm on the truth of God's word that there is only one true God and only one way to get to him. And that's through Jesus. And if somebody doesn't like it, really, that's too bad. We must pray for them and preach the gospel to them again and again and again. Don't back down. Don't back down. All right. Uh, let's answer the third question. We'll spend a little bit of time here too. But by way of recap, what is God? Do you remember? God is spirit. God is love. God is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And he's everywhere at once. Is there more than one God? No. There is only one true and living God. And finally, Oh, there is only one true and living God, and we are called to uh, witness to that. We are called to preach that to the world around us. It's the greatest thing that we can say about God, is that he is the one true living God. And then finally, how many persons are in the Godhead? Well, there's three persons in the Godhead. We call that the doctrine of the Trinity, These are not three separate gods. One God in three persons. 
blessed Trinity. How many persons are in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, listen now, of the same substance, equal in power and glory. What did we say was the substance of God, his essence, spirit, and love. So the Godhead is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are one. They are the same in substance, and they are equal in power and glory, meaning that God, Jesus, and Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory, meaning you can worship God the Father, you can worship God the Son, you can worship God the Holy Spirit. Let's go to 1 John 5, 7. First John 5, 7. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. These three are one. They're not three separate gods. These three are one. Remember I said these answers can be simple, but not easy to comprehend. And this one especially because there's nothing else, there's no other being like the Godhead, like God in the entire universe. Because remember, he's the one and only true God. So we can't compare God to anything else that we can see. But God has revealed himself to us in his word. And so one of the things that he's told us about himself is that he is three persons and they bear witness. They are in heaven and they are the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are one. Let's go back to Matthew 28, 19. I'm telling you, the book just flops open to it. I'm already there. Matthew 28, 19. I just quoted this. The Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of who? The Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Must be important. This is not just a trivial uh, doctrine, something that we can take or leave. This is important. This is uh, central to our understanding of this God that we are called to know and enjoy that he is three persons of the same substance, equal in power and glory. And then go back to Matthew 3, 16 and 17. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 says this. When Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him 
and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice from heaven came saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here at the baptism of Jesus, we can see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit participating together in Jesus' commission into his public ministry. So God is three distinct persons with one essence, with one nature, with one power, and with one glory. Remember, we said that God um, is spirit. That's his essence. Uh, we said that God is love. That's his nature. And then we talked about his divine attributes. God is three distinct persons with one essence, one nature, power, and glory. The oneness of the three distinct persons now comes from their relationship, their unity, their agreement. Let's talk about that for a moment. Let's settle here for a minute. How are these one? If they're three separate persons, how are they one God? Well, they are one through their relationship, through their unity, through their agreement. Remember back in Genesis, before they created mankind, what did they say? Let us make man in our image. And they were in agreement because man was made in the image of God. Their oneness comes from their relationship, their unity, their and their agreement. And so this relationship, this unity, this agreement is symbolized in marriage. Now, it's an imperfect symbol, trust me. But it's the best we have. Remember what God said? A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one. One flesh. How does that happen? It happens through intimacy, through relationship, through unity, through agreement. Like I said, it's not a perfect representation because humans are involved. But marriage is important and marriage is God's first institution because it represents the relationship that God enjoys with the Son and Holy Spirit. God has defined the terms of his relationship and he has instituted the marriage relationship to represent that. He's defined that. And what do we find ourselves doing as humans in this 21st century but trying to redefine that which God has clearly defined? Why? Why? Because Satan wants us to call into question God. He wants to uh, sow seeds of doubt. You see, if he can break up marriages, and if he can redefine marriage, 
and that he can convince us to call gay marriage marriage and convince us to respect that kind of union, then we will have redefined what God has clearly defined. We will disrespect what God has commanded us to respect. And we will naturally distance ourselves from God because we are not in agreement with him on what he has clearly defined. That's why this issue is so important to me and to people in the church. It's not because we're just fundamentalist and we're crazy and we don't want people to have any fun and we wanna suppress and oppress people. And that's, not, that's not really what we're all about. We're about honoring God and believing what God has clearly taught in his word. Uh, we're all about believing what God said and acting accordingly. All right, I'm just about to finish up here. And then I want to get to what a few people have said. I feel the Lord was speaking, and I want to pass that on to you. Confessing the doctrine of the Trinity is essential for Christian orthodoxy. It's important to believe right, because if you believe wrong, you cannot live strong. And the world needs strong Christians. If you're going to be a strong Christian, you're going to need a lot of things, but the main thing you're going to need is to believe right. You're going to need to believe right things about God. If your primary purpose is to know God and enjoy Him, then you've got to know the right things about Him. And one of the things to know about God is that He is three distinct persons, but He is one through relationship. The Trinity has been confessed and believed by the historic Christian church for at least 2,000 years. No matter which tradition you look at, all Orthodox Christianity has confessed this belief because it is essential, it is not negotiable, and it is one of the primary doctrines that we are to believe. There are secondary issues in the Bible. There are things that we can disagree on. But we cannot disagree on this because if we disagree on this, we're not talking about the same God. We're not worshiping the same God. Therefore, we cannot be in one accord. And so this is so important. One thing I want to point out, I want to warn you of, and then I'm going to close. There is a false doctrine of the Trinity that floats around out there. And I want you to be on the lookout for it. And if you hear uh, preachers and teachers preaching this way, I'm not going to use any names. Uh, but if you hear this, I want, an, I want you know, a little radar to go off and say, I'm gonna, I want to dig deeper here because if I'm listening to this person, I need to know that we're talking about the same God. And if this person is in error, accidentally, if they're in error, if they've been taught wrong, or are they intentionally uh, promoting and preaching a heresy? And the, the one main heresy that I want to talk about just for a moment is called modalism. Modalism teaches that the three persons of the Trinity are different modes of the Godhead. 
So they believe uh, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons, but different modes of the one God. So a typical modalist um, approach is to regard God as the Father in the Old Testament, to regard God as Jesus in the Gospels, and then to regard God as the Spirit in the church age. Modalists say that God exists in the form of Father, in the form of Son, and in the form of Spirit, but he exists that way in different eras of time and that he is never triune, meaning all those things at once. And so this is heresy, and if you hear that, do a little more research. Figure out what those people believe that you're listening to because they may be preaching error mistakenly or may be preaching false doctrine. And I mean, Paul wrote a lot of letters to Timothy and Titus and other churches telling them to watch out and to be sure that no one leads you astray. You gotta believe right. If you believe wrong, you can't live strong. If you hear somebody say that Jesus had to go to heaven because he needed to come back or change forms so he could come back as the spirit, then that is modalism, that is heresy. Uh, and that, that preacher or teacher might be preaching error, again, mistakenly, or on purpose. And so we are to see to it that no one leads us astray, Amen. that we go by the book, we go by what the book says. And um, we don't compromise that. All right, I'm going to leave that there. I think that's uh, you know, sufficient for tonight. I'm so 